Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Alon Stamens. Alon is Louis Sebring Professor of Humanities, Latin American, and Ladino Culture at Amherst College. He's the publisher of Restless Books and host of the NPR podcast, In Contrast. Welcome, Alon. Thank you. Always a huge treat to have a chance to um, stop long enough to have a conversation with you. So we have to bring you into the recording studio to make that happen. I'm thrilled. You're uh, quite the busy man (laughs) Um, and quite the presence here at the Yiddish Book Center. So uh, speaking of the Yiddish Book Center, I wanted to talk to you about your upcoming series of talks that are going to be taking place here at the center in Amherst, Mass., The title of the series is People of the Picture Book, the History of Jewish Children's Literature. And I wonder if you can unpack the title a little bit. Yes. uh, Well, obviously, it's a reference to uh, the way Jews have been described, but with an added component. We are the people of the book, uh, and that is because we have a contract, maybe, with ourselves and the world and with God, that uh, it is through the word, the word that appears on a page, a page that appears on a book, in a book that is carried from one place to another in an itinerant, uh, mobile way, that we make our presence uh, both physical, spiritual, emotional, and we have done so for many, many, many years. The question now is if we are as Jews and if the world around us is transitioning from the word to the picture, and if so, what does that entail? In what way that changes our um, uh, profile Uh, both to ourselves and to others, Jews have been essential players in the shaping of Hollywood, Uh, that is, the moving picture. And we have also been major players in the development of uh, picture books and young adult books and books that are connected with the Haggadah and with biblical imagery uh, that are now uh, given to children and in the form of graphic novels and in the form of comic strips and others to audiences. And now is it that we are presenting our stories, uh, the plots that we imagine in visual way, and have we renounce the word? Are we creating a new marriage between word and images? That is what the three series, three lecture series will be all about. It's a fascinating topic um, because it touches on what has been and what will be, what is. So let me start. The first lecture you deal with um, storytelling in the Middle Ages, and your talk description suggests to me that you'll be looking at the Haggadah and the book of Esther um, as tools for educating Jewish children. And without a spoiler alert for the, the, the talk series, I'm curious to know how these two works, especially the Haggadah, figures into this. I, the first lecture, Lisa, will rotate around a prohibition. The prohibition that we had as a people for many a century of uh, not having any idols or competing uh, icons that uh, would tempt our relationship with God. That stopped us from depicting images, human images, for long stretches of time to the degree that when other cultures, Christian cultures, had already theater, we didn't have a theater tradition. We had been left behind or chosen not to engage in uh, the production of uh, stage 
uh, performances at the time of Shakespeare, for instance. We think of Shylock as being a character that Shakespeare created at a time when there were no Jews in England. But what is the story of Jews and playwriting? Why were we not involved in such production? And the, the idea then is, when do we start presenting images, what type of images, and who is the audience? The two holidays that I am mentioning in the first series is Purim and uh, Passover, Pesach. And the way we engage with storytelling with children in the book of Esther and in the book of Exodus or the departure for the Jews of the, from Egypt. In particular with the Haggadah, this, is, uh, this was a very dangerous and serious and engaging topic. We wanted to pass on the story to the next generation, but we couldn't do it always in strict uh, anthropomorphic images. So we had to play around. And the very first, my suggestion in that first lecture, the very first picture books that we have are the Haggadahs, the Haggadahs that are telling that story. And if you look back at Haggadahs, that as you see the negotiations that we had on how to present Moses and how to present God and how to present the different characters that cross the river and other uh, scenes in ways that the kids would be uh, engaged. In, in that, I find fascinating as a bridge to what the whole series will be about, the Haggadah is a Jewish book unlike other books in that the audience is young creatures, young people. And when you engage with young people, you have to have a particular type of disposition approach, vision in your mind. You have to maybe lower down your language but not lower down your intellectual engagement. And uh, we have not become child-obsessed until rather recent recently. Uh, that is an interesting paradigm. How do the Haggadahs tell the story uh, that both satisfy adults that are at the table and children, or put them both to sleep? Um, and in what way that is the seed of how a children's storytelling is going to develop over time? It's, it's interesting to think about the Haggadah because it's such a part of family tradition, and there seem to be if it's safe to say, a proliferation of new Haggadahs. I mean, I ha we, we spoke a couple of years ago when you came out with your book. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it is fascinating because I think it takes on the character of the family, the character of those around the table, and uh, sort of it provides uh, some kind of uh, construct, in a sense, for the Seder. It does, and it does... It does it, Lisa, in a in a way that we not often pay attention to, and that is the fact that when an adult reads a book, first to conceive the idea that we have traveled from oral storytellers. The stories in the Bible went from one generation to the next, not in written form, but in oral uh, tradition. And the version that one generation delivered to the next was different from the one that would go on. And there wasn't what I describe as the tyranny of the written word, the, the, the flexibility of adding elements, of enhancing, was precisely what storytelling was about. The moment the, printed, the, the, the printer, the, the idea of a, of a press uh, becoming established, it stops that imagination from creating and 
moves us into what an author is, the responsible, controlling, ever-present figure. But when you have a children's book, there's also the other side, which is the reader. In, re in reality, two readers, the adult reader and the child reader. Well, nothing more beautiful than seeing a picture book being read by the caregiver and the child. And if you want to attract a children's audience, you first have to think of the adult audience that is the center here or the intermediary. And that's what the Haggadah is. The Haggadah first goes to the adults. The adults have to think that it's going to be appropriate for the children, and then it goes to the children. But when times change, like in ours, the child becomes much more of a power figure and in some ways even dictates uh, what the 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 content is going to be all about, both in Haggadahs and in children's books. Hmm. There's a long conversation we could have about <laughs> that. My father was a writer and also a storyteller. I know. So when it came to Seder, he took great joy in preparing to decide who would deliver which passages and what he would skip and what he wouldn't. But anyway, I digress. So let me ask you the second talk, People of the Picture Book, The Invention of Childhood. And in this, you consider how, and I'm intrigued by this, Elon, psychoanalysis and the comic strip industry in the 20th century served as or informed Jewish um, books like classics like Curious George, Where the Wild Things Are, you name The Hungry Caterpillar. And this talk, as I say, really kind of intrigues me. I'm not certain I understand where psychoanalysis figures in. <laughs> so eager to hear your thoughts. And um, again, comic strips are near and dear to me because my father was a writer of uh, in the Golden Age. And I've always sort of felt that these are, there's something Jewish about comic books. There's a lot Jewish about comic and books. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about those roots um, and then... It, yeah, sort of enlighten me briefly, if you could, briefly. about psychoana <laughs> psychoanalysis. I don't want to give give away your entire lecture. Psychoanalysis. <laughs> the questions are terrific. Yeah. They, 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 I don't know if it's uh, possible to trace a, to a moment in history when this uh, ever-present uh, command of what a child does, the child-friendly culture, maybe the child-obsessed culture that we live in today, can be traced to. But if it can, and if it's not uh, too facetious, uh, I would say that it's at the very end of the 19th century when Freud starts saying in his books, the, the lectures on psychoanalysis, the invention of the subconscious, uh, that the uh, there is a lot that is happening in childhood that we don't pay attention to, a lot of forces that are struggling to emerge. And those forces at that particular time will ultimately shape what a life is going to be. It, he shifts the attention from the psychological presence of adults to what is happening in his case with sexual uh, forces uh, in childhood. And in doing so, in many ways, he forces us to start looking back at our childhood as the foundation of what, we, what we're going to become in the future. It, that ends up impacting the way childhood has to be curated, has to be taken place uh, in order to have an you know, absence of traumas or, or a, the intellect is being guided, the education is shaped. And with the uh, establishment of the first generation of psychoanalysts also came an entirely new vision of how to look at pedag pedagogical approaches 
to high to a elementary school, new books for children, and those at first were only textbooks, and eventually the flourishing that we have in an extraordinary form today of a picture books began in the 1920s and 1930s in different parts of the world. The United States actually came rather late. Russia uh, was a leading Germany, Italy, uh, England, and uh, the, the fact that we take it for granted that when you go to a bookstore today, there's this entirely other universe that is exclusively for ch children where the bookshelves are rather short so that children can go and get them themselves is a rather recent phenomenon. Then it comes with the popularization of a, of a mass culture that you were invoking, and that is the the idea that newspapers in the 1930s and 40s could have comic strips that would eventually evolve into something much more sophisticated in the expansion of the superhero culture uh, of the Superman, uh, Batman, and others. Many of the early, you, were, you, you come from that tradition, many of the early uh, illustrators and writers of comic strips were Jews. Uh, and one could imagine uh, that the prototype of Superman as a defender of the oppressed, of the vulnerable, and one that has superpowers but are hidden, uh, has a double identity, the one that is public and the one that is private, is nothing but a metaphor of what Jews are in society. Um, maybe it's pushing it a little too far because now the superheroes are all over. But at the very beginning, that image of the double identity and also the fact that this was considered pop. Today we look at the cartoons and the comic strips as, as, as interesting artifacts, but they were not seen as interesting artifacts at the beginning. There was even a law in the United States prohibiting the consumption of comic strips as dangerous to childhood and, and adolescence. So all of this comes always with a kind of a forceful a, a challenge of a laws and, and a, an embrace. It's it's interesting now when I think about what you're looking at in terms of psychoanalysis and, and uh, three of the books that you chose, which are Curious George, Where the Wild Things Are, and The Very Hungry Caterpillar, because they are vehicles for, I think it's safe to say I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I've certainly read children's books to children, that these allow us to deal with things. They become conversation starters. So in much the same way that we can look at the superhero, as you've just described him, and see in ourselves that person who has to be a bit of a chameleon and, and a bit of a, a public-facing person. So there is, um, again, going back to the Haggadah, a thread there. Absolutely, absolutely. And these three books are, as, as you suggested, um, three examples. They are not uh, arbitrary. The idea of, I, I can't think of a more Jewish book than a Curious George, always escaping, always being rambunctious, a, and always looking for ways to establish himself, but then being seen as a danger. A, I can't think of a more Jewish book than Where the Wild Things Are. Either Jews Ask the Wild Things or Jews as Max. This actually was created by Maurice Sendak around a Holocaust surviving a relatives that in his family that in, initially he 
looked at as horses in the book, and then the editor said, horses don't quite, why don't you create some kind of monster? But this is this is a friendly must, monster mm-hmm. that you should create. And they have, they are modeled after aunts and uncles that he would see when he was little that had come that were strange, strange looking with teeth that didn't quite align in, in hair that wasn't ever in the right place and that uh, came from an old world, a world into which Max goes that to him might have been that Eastern European background where, uh, where they were coming from. And the very hungry caterpillar, much more simple but not less metaphorical, of this curious, ever-expanding and contracting um, insect that is uh, always very enduring in its colors and has its own its own place. Three created three books created by Jews in the United States, connected with different parts of the world. The uh, creators of a of a Curious George escaped Nazi Germany through Brazil and then came to the United States and escape is at the center of Curious George's life, um, I think are perfect examples of how to look at children's literature, not only as children's literature, but beyond in terms of Jewish culture. So you you answered one of my questions before I was able to ask it. Uh, Curious George is certainly a book I grew up with. And were it not for the fact that it's come out in a million editions, I'd be dating myself. Uh, <laughs> but you're eternal, then. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so I was I was wondering what the Jewish theme was because obviously as a child I didn't think of it, and then and again I'm a little bit intrigued that it's been um, translated into Yiddish. Yeah. So what's that all about? I, well, the fact that it's translated into Yiddish is that it's going back to the source, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Because even if, even if it wasn't originally, obviously, conceived in Yiddish, in many ways Yiddish is the foundation of, in terms of cultural heritage of where many of these books are coming from. But that is a very good excuse, I think, to think of the way children's literature has proliferated in the world, how each, and that is the topic of the third lecture, um, we don't have uh, one children's book industry. We have national book industries, the American, the Russian, the Spanish, the English, that are connected with language. And when it comes to Jews, uh, where are we? Well, we are in all of them, uh, both present physically and absent, yet tangibly uh, represented uh, through symbols, through images, and through the fact that many of the editors, writers, and illustrators in many of these countries are Jews or have been Jews because this is something that we have been passionate about. And even when not consciously we realize that this comes back to our past, the Haggadah, and even before the biblical images that we visualize um, in our families, in our traditions. So let's talk a little bit about going going back, back. I mean, the caves of Altamira, all of the cave drawings and other ways of preserving or presenting narrative without words mm-hmm. um, for cultures that didn't have language or didn't read, there's certainly a long history of that. And then I'm going to jump forward again, as I want to do in this interview. Um, You are uh, 
and I think you come every year to our great Jewish book summer program for I high do. school students. Yeah, I love it. And yes, and all of the students stop and tell me how much they love your talk, <laughs> which really is focused around the graphic novel. Yes. Now, the graphic novel has roots that go back, 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 back. Tell me a little bit. The graphic novel is uh, an endearing form that I feel very close to. It is something that used to be seen as marginal, as something that only adolescents were reading. And now, in in large part, thanks through thanks to Art Spiegelman, the embrace of topics that are complex and 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 require investment from the audience is has moved from the periphery to the center of culture. The graphic novel is now a full-blown, mature, literary uh, genre that, that uh, attracts all sorts of writers. And I think that it might well be the marriage of what we were talking about, the, ch- the tradition of of giving children stories through images, the realization that we're moving from the word to the icon, mm-hmm. the thanks to the internet and through technology in general, and the resistance to give up words altogether. So the graphic novel has both of them. The graphic novel, you can do in one page a lot without words, and when you throw in the words, you add a lot more. And if you find the right balance, how to tell a story, it, should the words tell the story? Should the images tell the story? How should one of those two not run too fast and leave the other one behind but kind of help each other? Um, if you do it well, I think that you will, you're able to connect with that generation now that has grown up with this, that it erases the border between pop culture and highbrow culture, which is what the signature of today's right. young people is all about. And uh, and you are realizing also that th- this approach that we have, that maybe the image has taken over and that we are abandoning something that is so important as the word, is not as dangerous or precarious as it might sound. It might be an, a, a very welcoming future where, where it's more hybrid and more interconnected. Uh, maybe for the older generation, it will feel uncomfortable but I, being a teacher, spending every most of my days in front of young people, do think that the imagination this young generation has is extraordinary, and the capacity to expl- express it in new forms is even more extraordinary. That segues into, um, I know you have to get back to teach. <laughs> I have to let you go. Um, but before you do, uh, is there one book? that's sort of most representative, it's a favorite of yours, you want to leave us with this this book in our head? <laughs> uh, that's such a challenge, yeah. Lisa. I, I, um, over the years, I have uh, created a collection in my house of Jewish picture books. Maybe I have uh, 300 from different languages. I have works by Isaac Bashevizinger, Elie Wiesel. I have works that come from other cultures, from Brazil, Moisir Sclair, and Lazar Segal from Russia. I do think, and I have a book that is particularly interesting. I wouldn't put it as the one that you are naming. This is the book. But it's particularly interesting because it's the story of an insect um, and it is in an invented language. It is not in English. Not, it's, it's in uh, Roman letters. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is that it is using a language that 
that adults don't understand and children don't understand, but it's perfect for children because they themselves don't understand the full language. And I love that it, it kind of goes beyond everything. I would go back to uh, Where the Wild Things Are. It's a book that in its design, in its shape, uh, I, I adore. I go back to, I teach it to adults, I teach it to children. Uh, I think it's a lesson of where uh, the children's book can go and it can go anywhere. I, I, sorry, I just it flashed in front of me, and I guess I'll share it. When I was five, we were in Europe. My brother was eight. I didn't read yet, and my and we went out and got books. And of course, I felt very happy that the books were in a foreign language that my brother was unable to read. So that empowered me to look at the visual and become the storyteller. So it um, it took away the, that talent that he had, which was that he was able to read. Um, <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of food for thought here. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. For our listeners, Alon Stavins will be presenting the series of three talks at the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, on May 1 at 7 p.m., again on May 8th, the second lecture, at 7 p.m., May 15th, again at 7 p.m. at the Yiddish Book Center. The talks are open to the public. To learn more, you can visit yiddishbookcenter.org backslash visit, where you'll find a listing of the center's calendars of event. Um, the talks, again, uh, fill up quickly, so I, I suggest you get here early. The doors open at 6.30. And I, are you doing another program, may I ask, in conjunction with this at the... Yeah, we're doing another program at the Eric Carl Museum mm-hmm. on the first weekend of May to launch a uh, an imprint called Yonder that is part of a publishing house that I run as a publisher called Restless Books. And we are publishing four books for children every year that come from another culture translated into English. Uh, and uh, the rationale behind it is that we have to include translation as well in children's literature and not be so ghettoized in the way we shape our views. So I invite uh, uh, your listeners to come to the Eric Carl Museum on the first Sunday of uh, the Eric Carl Museum not too far from here in Amherst, Massachusetts, the first Sunday from 11 to 4 o'clock for a fiesta of writers and readers and teachers and others connected with children's books from other, other parts of the world. Well, thank you for your boundless energy, um, which really um, we are great recipients of that here in the Valley because you're always doing something inventive um, <laughs> to make us think. Thanks again, Alon. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Sarah Bleichfeld, Visitor Services and Public Programs Manager at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 84, Aaron Lansky's August 2014 conversation with Devin Narr about the origins of the Ladino language and his work collecting Ladino books. Until next time, be well, be healthy. Sei gesund!